This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, good evening, and thanks for joining me here on Zoomer Radio. Tonight, Marie Wilson stars as a scatterbrained stenographer who shares an apartment with her friend Jane. And the program? My Friend Irma. The show was sponsored by Swan Soap, so keep your ears to the radio because we might hear Irma slide in a reference to the product in her exchanges with Jane. The show spawned a media franchise. My Friend Irma was so popular in the late 40s that its success escalated to films, television, and a comic strip, even a comic book. Boy, if you're a collector of comic books, I bet you'd love to have one of those in your collection, huh? I wonder what a copy of that would uh, fetch. Well, I don't have the time to go online to track that info down. Maybe there's a comic book collector in the audience who might know that info. But right now, let's listen to My Friend Irma and the episode Acute Love Sickness. Irma? Irma? Yes, Jane? Honey, where are you going with that pot roast? Downstairs. I have to cook it on the furnace downstairs in the basement. Downstairs in the basement? Yes, the recipe says to cook it over a low fire. Well, that's what you can expect when you listen to my friend, Irma. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship. When other friendships have been forgotten, theirs will still be hot. Lieber Brothers Company, makers of Swan, the soap with the exclusive Super Creams blend, presents... Our friend Swan. With my friend Irma. Starring Marie Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. in the country. But me, Jane Stacy, give me New York. You can do the same things in New York that you can do in the country. Right now, I'm on the roof of our brownstone taking an early morning sun bath. Oh, I'm just stretched out here. I've got all the privacy in the world. On my right is a billboard. On my left is a blank wall of a warehouse. And right in front of me, holy mackerel, it's the YMCA. <laughs> Outside of the track, I've never seen so many spy glasses. <laughs> well, but so what? I'm not frustrated. So I'm an eyeful in a bathing suit. Oh, I feel wonderful and alive because spring has come around. Of course, I'd feel a lot better if spring came around and brought me a fellow with it. <laughs> but anyway, it's a beautiful day. Oh, look at that little squirrel scampering up that tree. <laughs> Probably looking for a nut. <laughs> Which reminds me, maybe Irma would like to come up on the roof and take a sunbath. Let's go get her. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Irma? Irma, 
it's a glorious day. What are you doing in bed? I think I'm sick, Jane. Oh, really? Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. Maybe you overate last night. Maybe. On second thought, that's impossible. Al bought your dinner. <laughs> well, uh, how, how do you feel, honey? Have you a pain in any particular place? No, I hurt all over. My pains aren't particular. Oh. <laughs> that's too bad. Well, maybe you'd feel better if you got up, huh? Here's your robe. Thanks, Jane. Now, how about some coffee? No, thanks. Want me to make you some tea? No. Milk? No. I came into the world without anything. I might as well go out the same way. <laughs> oh, honey, don't be dramatic. But I do feel sick, Jane. Well, then, gee, I don't think you should go to work. Now, I won't go either. I'll stay home and I'll take care of you, huh? I'll call your boss, Mr. Clyde. I'll tell him you're not coming in. Oh, I'd better speak to him, Jane. He won't know where anything is. Oh, yes, I forgot you have your own filing system. <laughs> Hello? Milton J. Clyde, attorney at law. Mr. Clyde, this is me, Irma Peterson. She asked me to tell you she won't be in today because she's sick. <laughs> have you any messages you'd like delivered to her? Miss Peterson, I would know that voice any place. The only thing I want from you is if you'll kindly tell me where you put a few things, and I'll be very happy to try to get by without you for the day. Well, I'd be glad to help. Fine. Now, where is the carbon copy of the letter you mailed to Mr. Albert? On the other side of his letter. I had the carbon paper in backwards. <laughs> well, that's par for you. Now, uh, tell me, uh, what did you do with that check for $1,000 which I got from Mrs. Van Gogh? Oh, that check was no good. What are you talking about? It was certified. Well, there were a lot of little holes in the check, so I threw it away. <laughs> After all, I'm not stupid. <laughs> Mr. Clyde? Hello? Are you there? Yes, but I'm on my knees. <laughs> Just one more question. What did you do with my papers on Universal Copper? Where did you file them? Just where they belong, in the filing cabinet under A. Under A? Of course. Copper is made to make pennies. And whose picture is on the penny? Lincoln's. That's right. What's his first name? Abraham. So look under A. <laughs> you see how easy these things are when we work together? Mr. Clyde. Mr. Clyde, where are you? I'm on the floor. <laughs> At least pay me the courtesy of hanging up so I can call the doctor. Goodbye. Goodbye. Was he angry, honey? No, he's just a big-hearted sentimentalist. Sentimentalist? Yes, every time I talk to him, he cries. Oh. <laughs> Jane, I think I'll lie down. I just feel bad all over, like an old horse ready for pasture. Grand. I'll go and buy a saddle, and we'll take a ride in Central Park. <laughs> On you. Come in. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> Hello, Janie and Irma, my two little air conditioners. One breezy, the other with a dent in the vent. <laughs> Irma, my darling little pigeon, what's the matter with you? You're lying there like a dead herring. I'm sick, Professor. Well, I'm no doctor, but let me give you some advice. 
As you know, when I was a little child, I was raised by a band of gypsies. And every time we got sick, they used to give us a pinch of barley root in a glass of vodka. Oh, those wonderful epidemics we had. Oh, I think I will take her to a doctor, Professor. Maybe she needs a blood count or a basal metabolism. Oh, Jane, why do I need a nasal metabolism? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with my breathing. I'm just sick all over. Run down. Probably haven't got enough blood. You know, like when you're suffering from magnesia. <laughs> Anemia, honey. Irma, my darling, most diseases are mental. What you should do is think of something real pleasant, like you and Al are married. Me and Al married? There, you look better already. Now you're having a big wedding reception. All your friends are there. All my friends. And then on the table in front of you, they put a gorgeous wedding cake six feet high. Mm. Irma, Irma, why are you crying? All that wonderful cake, and I'm too sick to eat any. Oh, honey. Come in. Hello, Janie and Irma. Oh, there you are, Professor. Now, wait a minute, Mrs. O'Reilly. Wait, nothing. This poem you shoved under my door. You've got your nerve. Girls, listen to this. Roses are red, violets are blue. How many more years must I wait for you? Why, that sounds lovely. What's wrong with it? He signed it, The Undertaker. <laughs> well, I couldn't spell Kropotkin in the dark. I'll go along with you. Irma, darling, what are you doing lying there on the sofa? I don't feel well, Mrs. O'Reilly. Oh, you poor child. Jean, why don't you get a doctor? Oh, I'm just about to take her to Dr. Davis. Well, I know everyone prefers their own doctor. Me? I wouldn't go to anyone but Dr. Raymond Spritzler. <laughs> He's done a lovely bit of plastic surgery for me. <laughs> That's nice when you're going to call for it. <laughs> well, this is getting us no place. Come on, honey. We'll go see a doctor and we'll find out what's wrong with you. Good morning, Miss Stacy. What can I do for you? Uh, doctor, I have my roommate, Miss Peterson, in the reception room. She's been complaining about feeling ill, and I thought yes, that... I understand. Would... I'll see her immediately. Uh, send Miss Peterson in. Hello, Doctor. Hello, Miss Peterson. I'll wait outside for you, honey. Uh, now, if you'll just sit right here, Miss Peterson. That's it. Uh, now, suppose that, first of all, we get a little case history, hmm? I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed, Doctor. You see, history was my worst subject. Yeah. <laughs> you have a fine sense of humor. Uh, now tell me, have you had any chronic afflictions? Only Al. I've liked him for years. I beg your pardon? Uh, he's my fiancé, you know. Uh, yes, I, I know. Uh, Miss Peterson, we're not getting anywhere. I want to know if you recall ever having any serious illness. No. Well, when did you last see a doctor? In that picture with Lionel Barrymore. <laughs> I see. Uh, <clears throat> Miss Peterson, will you please step over here on the scales? Well, I haven't got a penny. <laughs> well, it's on the <laughs> Now, please stand still. That's it. Uh-huh. Uh, 118. Am I through? No. Now, uh, yeah, slip this thermometer under your tongue. That's it. Close your mouth. Fine. 
I'll get a chart ready for you. Emma Peterson, single. Uh, all right, now let's look at that thermometer. Hmm, 98. 98? Just wait 118. I've lost 10 pounds. Uh, <coughs> Miss Peterson, why don't you lie down on this couch for a moment and rest? I'll be right back. All right, I'll just listen to your radio. Uh, do you mind if I use these earphones? That's my stethoscope, but go right ahead. <laughs> well, doctor. Doctor, is it anything serious? No, I'll be all right. <laughs> I just had to get out of there for a minute. I mean, I, no, don't don't worry, Miss Stacy. There's nothing organically wrong with the girl. I think I know the cause of her illness. I think we can bring her back to normal. Well, doctor, I don't want miracles. I just wanted to get well. <laughs> What's wrong with her? Your friend is suffering from a common disease. Oh, dear doctor, what is it? Well, it's nothing to be alarmed about. It's spring, and she's got an acute case of lovesickness. Ah, oh, I should have known. She's eating her heart out for Al. Oh, the poor kid. I'll go in and comfort her. Irma, honey. Irma? Cookie? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Oh, he doesn't love me. Neither will a doctor when he finds out you cut all the fingers off his rubber gloves. <laughs> Most Irma's illness as lovesickness doesn't make matters one bit easier. You see, Irma happens to be in love with a man who hasn't worked for so long that... Well, I'll put it this way. If Al was Stanley, the explorer, and Dr. Livingston was a job, Stanley would never have found Livingston. <laughs> I tell these things to Irma, but she keeps crying, and she's actually making herself sick. I've sent for the professor and Mrs. O'Reilly so we can have a council of war to decide what to do about Al. I just can't stand any more of Irma's suffering. Oh, sweetie. Please don't carry on like that. It's, it's not good for you. I can't help it, Jane. This is spring, the time for romance. The birds are singing. The flowers are budding. The sap is starting to fall, and I have no one to catch me. <laughs> well, now, don't cry, honey. Things have a way of working out, you know. Why don't you go for a walk and forget your troubles, huh? All right, I, I think I'll take a walk in the park and visit the zoo. After all, that's where I met Al. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, honey. He was taking peanuts away from the monkeys. <laughs> Goodbye. Hello Oh, Al Al, I want you to come over here as soon as you can Why not? What trouble are you having? With a gum machine? Didn't you get your gum? Well, you got the gum, but the string on the nickel broke <laughs> Look, Al, you hurry right over here Goodbye Come in only us, Professor Kropotkin and Mrs. O'Reilly. Oh, I'm so glad the two of you are here. Irma's in trouble. Oh, the poor child. Now, don't worry, Jamie. If Irma's in trouble, you'll stand in back of her. Mrs. O'Reilly will stand in back of you, and I'll stand in back of Mrs. O'Reilly. 
You know, I don't know if this could help Irma, but this could be a very good conga line. Please, Professor, this is serious. Now, we all know that Al has been giving Irma the runaround, and what with this being spring and June not too far off, the poor girl is lovesick. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> Please, Mrs. O'Reilly, stop winking at me. I'm tired of picking up your eyelashes. Anyway, it seems to me that there's only one solution. Al is coming over here, and we've got to get him to commit himself to announce his engagement to Irma. But I thought they were engaged. Oh, no, just in words, Professor. I want Al to give her a ring. And then Irma will feel secure, and she'll stop worrying herself sick. In other words, we have to get Al to propose. Yeah, knowing him, I think it's hopeless. Oh, Jane, nothing is hopeless. As in the case of... Uh... Tell me, Mrs. O'Reilly, how did you trick your first husband into proposing to you? I didn't trick him. It was love at first sight. He always said my eyes were like two deep pools. My luck, I had to meet you after the dam broke. <laughs> oh, now, please, the two of you were trying to solve Irma's problem. Well, if Al did propose, where will he get a ring? Has he any money? Money? Are you kidding? His pockets haven't seen his hands since that last cold spell we had. <laughs> but what are we going to do? We've got to get him to propose. Otherwise, Irma's never going to get over her sickness. Open up, chicken. It's me, your little Al. That's him. That's him. I'll handle him, folks. If I need any help, I'll call you. All right, Jane. Come in. Hello, Jane. Hi, folks. Where's chicken? Well, why is everybody staring at me? If I was your mother, I'd shoot your father. If I was your father, I'd deserve it. Come on, Mrs. O'Reilly. Before we both forget we are gentlemen. What goes here, Jane? They don't look at me that way. I've seen prosecuting attorneys with more pleasant expressions. Al? Sit down. First, I want to know where chicken is. That's what I want to talk to you about, Al. Now, you've known Irma for over a year. Check. And I assume you love her. Love her? Jane, I ain't got any flair for these poetical phrases. But believe me, when I walk down the street with my arm around Irma, I couldn't feel any better if I was carrying home a barrel of beer. <laughs> well, for you, that's kind of tender. But I want to know what you're going to do about her future. Well, naturally, I'm spending day and night working on my deals. Oh, stop with your deals. No, 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 this, this one's sure fine. I'm planning on cutting the toes and heels off of socks and selling them for spats. <laughs> oh, no. You'll never make any money that way. Why don't you try stretching bottle caps and selling them for pie plates? See, <laughs> that ain't bad. You know, Jane, there's a certain undertone here that I don't like. It's like a bunch of cops whispering to each other as I pass by. Now, listen to me, Al. I want to know about you and Irma. Just a minute, Jane. You may be her roommate, but my relationship with Irma is purely a personal matter. Not when it makes her sick. Not when she's out walking like she is now and crying her heart out. My chicken is sick? Oh, gee, I'd rather die than hurt my chicken. Well, then why don't you do what any man would do? Make some definite gesture to show her that you mean business. Well, I did, Jane. Why, just the other day, I went about making arrangements for our marriage. I priced a house. I looked at furniture, spoke to a minister... Then I went to the bank to arrange for a loan. Well? Spent the rest of the day canceling everything. 
Look, Al, the time has come when you're going to have to do something besides make promises. But I've already told her we're engaged. Al, in case you don't know, there's a little item called an engagement ring that a girl likes to get. Been working on it. In fact, my friend Joe sold me a raffle ticket on a ring. Won the raffle, too. But something went wrong. Joe's wife woke up while he was trying to slip it off her finger. <laughs> Al. Al, would you really give Irma a ring if you had one? On my word. Well, here. What's this you give me, Jane? This was my grandmother's engagement ring. She gave it to me, and I want you to give it to Irma. Oh, Jane, I couldn't take this. It's, it's an heirloom. Probably means a great deal to you. It does. Not as much as Irma. And I don't want her to know that I gave it to you. Gee, Jane, I, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm all choked up. How much is it worth? Never mind what it's worth. <laughs> really? When you give this ring, I want you to be looking into two blue eyes, not three gold balls. <laughs> Trust me, Jane. Don't be naive, Al. I'm going out now, and when I come back, I want to see a well Irma and an engaged Irma with a ring on her third finger left hand. Got me, Al? Gotcha, Jane. Gee, looks like a pretty expensive ring. It's got two diamonds on each side. In that case, there's only one man to call. Who else but... Hello, Joe. <laughs> Al, got a problem. Just received a ring with two diamonds. What do you suggest? Uh-huh. 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 Mm-hmm. Only one man to handle it? Friendly Freddy, the philosophical fence? <laughs> well, where is he located? Oh, he's with an old southern family on their farm? Oh, the prison farm in Georgia. <laughs> no, no, Joe. This, this ring is legitimate. You see, I got to give it... Oh, Joe, what am I doing? What am I talking to you for? This is for my girl. The whole thing is on the up and up. Sorry I took up your time. Was merely acting on a natural impulse. Got carried away by the diamonds. Forget it, Joe. We'll call you on another proposition. Goodbye. Al, sometimes you get mighty close to being a bum. Oh, Jane. Oh, why, Al, what are you doing here? Hi, you chicken. Hello, Al, honey. Chicken... There's something very important I want to ask you. All right, Al, shall we go over to the sofa? No, this is important. <laughs> Let's go over to the sink. Sink? All right, Al. Good. Now, listen, I'll, I'll turn the faucet on. There. Pretty romantic, huh? <laughs> what? Chicken, ain't you got no imagination? That's Niagara Falls. Oh... No one could have said it any nicer. I do. Chicken, we are now engaged. And to make it legal, I am going to give you an engagement ring. Oh, Al, this is the moment I've waited for. Let me see the ring. Not, 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 not yet, Chicken. Want to do this in such a way that you'll never forget it. Now we'll sit over here on the sofa. Oh, hurry, Al. I'm as excited as an expectant father walking up and down in front of a maternity house. <laughs> Feel the same way, chicken. Now turn down the lights. They're down. Good. Now, chicken, close your eyes. They're closed. Now, beloved, as behooves the occasion, 
I would like to make a speech to mark this wonderful moment. Oh, go ahead, Al. I can hear you even though my eyes are closed. <laughs> Chicken, I have looked the whole world over for a fair maiden to share my worldly possessions. I admit most of my possessions are no longer in my possession. <laughs> because they've already been possessed. And those I possess, I cannot get. Because they're in a place from which I have been dispossessed. Go ahead, Al. It's beautiful. But east is east, and west is west. And as Mark Twain said, we have met. <laughs> and having met, I hereby with this ring, thee do engage. <laughs> Your hand, my love. Here, Al. Al, oh, what's the matter? Can't find the ring. Oh, Al. Turn the lights on, chicken. Can't understand. I just had it in my hand. I must have fallen on the sofa. Help me look for it, chicken. Hey, wait a minute, Al. Are you sure you had a ring? Positive. Well, where did you get it? Well, sh uh, uh, gee, I can't see it any place. Al, where would you get a ring? Uh, from my great-great-grandmother. I never told you about her because it would make you sad. You see, she's dead. <laughs> Al, I don't believe you ever had a ring. This is just another one of your jokes, and I never want to see you again. Chicken, believe me, I wouldn't kid you. To me, marriage is a sacred honor. Like not turning state's evidence on a close member of the family. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Al. I can't believe you, and I never want to see you again. Goodbye. Well, chicken, if that's the way you want it. Goodbye. Oh. Oh. Hello. What's that? You want to reserve four seats for streetcar named Desire? You've got the wrong number. Besides, can't you tell I'm crying? My heart is breaking. For all I care, you can take the subway. <laughs> oh, Jane. Oh, Irma, you're still crying. Didn't you see Al? Yes, and I never want to see him again. Oh, but, 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 sweetie, didn't he give you, uh, uh, didn't he give you something? No, all he did was put out the lights and tell me to close my eyes. Then he pretended he lost a ring. What? Lost it? Oh, Jane, you know, Al, where would he get a ring? Where would he get it? Why, I... I... Oh, I... Oh, Irma, if anything has happened to that ring, I'll... Irma, what's the matter with you now? What do you mean? Well, you're limping. Honey, take your shoe off. All right, Jane. Jane, look, it's a ring. Oh, oh, thank heaven. There you see, you see, honey, Al wasn't lying after all. Oh. <laughs> now what are you crying about? We're not engaged. The ring is on the wrong foot. <laughs> on the right foot, I mean, the right finger, and Irma's engaged, she's happy again. Right now, she's bending over her hope chest. Sweetie, what are you doing with the double harness? Well, they say when you get married, you should pull as a team. <laughs> and you know, automobiles may have replaced horses, but nothing will ever replace my friend, Irma. Irma. <laughs> 
Slim are presented by Swan and other fine products of Lieber Brothers Company was produced and directed by Cy Howard. Tonight's script was written by Cy Howard and Park Levy. Folks, next Monday evening, listen again to my friend Irma starring Murray Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. The part of Professor Kropotkin was played by Hans Conry. Ladies, listen. The shortage of fats and oils is still very serious, and it's worldwide. So please keep on saving every drop of used kitchen fat. Your butcher will pay you for every pound. Frank Bingman speaking. Some closing thoughts on my friend Irma. The show made her a star, but typecast her almost interminably as the quintessential dumb blonde. During World War II, she was a volunteer performer at the Hollywood Canteen. She was also a popular wartime pinup. Wilson's performance in Satan Met a Lady, the second film adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's detective novel The Maltese Falcon, is a virtual template for Marilyn Monroe's later on-screen persona. Wilson appeared in more than 40 films and was a guest in The Ed Sullivan Show on four occasions. She was a television performer during the 60s, working until her untimely death. Wilson's talents have been recognized with three stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame for radio, television, and for movies. Oh, get your deerstalker hat on. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are on the way next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 at 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Thanks for sticking around. During the 1940s, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, famous for playing Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, repeated their characterizations on radio on the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The show featured both original stories and episodes directly adapted from Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. And here's a weird little factoid. None of the episode in which Rathbone and Bruce starred on the radio program were filmed with the two actors as Holmes and Watson. So radio became the only medium in which audiences were able to experience the two in some of the more famous Holmes stories. And I think from his accent, most people assumed Basil Rathbone hailed from somewhere in London. Not so. He was born in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1892. But three years later, the family was forced to flee the country because his father was accused of being a British spy at the time when Dutch-British conflicts were leading to the Boer War. After graduation, Basil planned to uh, pursue acting as a profession, but his father disapproved and suggested his son try working in business for a year. Rathbone accepted his father's suggestion and worked as a clerk for an insurance company for exactly one year. Well, let's put those acting chops to good use. It's The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and the episode The Baconian Caper. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. Well, I'm sure Dr. Watson's ready for us. Let's go in and join him, shall we? Dogs seem very pleased with themselves tonight. Did they have a good day? Yes, the three of us did, my boy. Hey, go on. I'll off out in the patio. I took a seven iron and some old golf balls on the beach this afternoon. I improved my game, I think, and the dogs had a great time chasing the golf balls. On the way home, the little rascals had a 
furious battle with an elderly pelican. <laughs> so their day was complete. I'll have to join you on one of your afternoon strolls, Doctor. You and the dog seem to have so much fun. Oh, I'll be glad of your company, Mr. Bartell. Well, drop your usual churn. I'll get on with tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure. From the hints you gave us last week, I guess a Frenchman played a prominent part in the story. Yes, indeed he did, Mr. Bartell. His name was Francois Lavia. He was a detective of some note in his own country. The time my story begins, it was in 1889, to be exact. Lavia had come over to London to discuss with Holmes the difficulties of translating some of his monographs into the French language. At this particular time, I was in the early days of my marriage, Mr. Bartell, and this fact, combined with a busy practice meant that I saw very little of my old friend. He must have missed you, Doctor. Oh, uh, he did. <laughs> well, of course, he'd never admit the fact, but, uh, but uh, to get on with my story. One cloudless June afternoon, I found myself in the neighborhood of Baker Street, and I couldn't resist paying a visit to Holmes. Mrs. Hudson was out, but uh, having retained my old latchkey, I let myself in and mounted the familiar stairs. It gave me a strange feeling as I raised my hand to knock on what once had been my own living room door. Come in, come in. Oh, hello, Holmes. Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I didn't know you... Watson, my dear fellow. How very nice to see you again. <laughs> it's great to see you, Holmes. I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I, no. I didn't know that you had company. Not at all, my dear fellow. We're delighted, aren't we, Le Villard? Watson, this is uh, Monsieur Le Villard. Well, how do you do, sir? How do you do? Enchanté, monsieur. I have often wished to meet this so charming Dr. Watson. Holmes has told me a great deal about you. Oh, it's very nice of you, sir. Ah, that <laughs> suits you, Watson. You look splendid, old fellow. Gained a little weight, haven't you? Oh, uh, yes, a few pounds, I mean. Come, sir, sit down, won't you? Uh, you sure that I'm not interrupting you in some important discussion? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 my cher doctor. We were having a good-natured argument on the relative abilities of the French criminal compared to the English. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you must lend me your support, idea. Watson. Monsieur Le Villard is convinced that the English criminal is a very dull dog indeed. Well, we've met some far from dull ones in our time, I... I assure you, Monsieur Le Villard. Ah, the exceptions <laughs> rather than the rule, I fear, mon cher docteur. <laughs> You're stubborn, aren't you, Le Villard? <laughs> Believe me, my dear friend, that I will yield to no one in my admiration of your knowledge and skill. That is why I wish I could persuade you to practice in Paris. Ah, there you would find opponents really worthy of your steel. What can happen to interest you in this land of grey frogs, uh, boiled potatoes and uh, pots of tea? Before myself, sir, you you're not very flattering. Oh, don't be so insular, Watson. Oh, I meant no offense, my friend. Well, you say that the English criminal is dull. Well, perhaps if you were to read a published story of mine called A, a Study in Scarlet, you'd think differently. It tells of a very exciting adventure that Holmes and I had. I have read it, my friend. Well, have. An extremely gripping story, oh, but yes. surely you will admit that the crime was essentially of American origin. <laughs> He's right, Watson. <laughs> He's perfectly right, dear me. What can I do to vindicate the dishonor of the London criminal? Let me see. Oh, yes, yes, of course. A copy of today's Times. That's fine. I shall introduce you to a section known as the Agony Column. Uh, where is it now? Oh, yes, here we are. This should convince you of the color and variety of English life. The agony column? Mm -hmm. It sounds most painful. Uh, what is it, Frank? A personal column is liable to contain anything from a lover's frantic appeal to his lady love to a ransom note. In my profession, I've frequently found it an invaluable medium for contacting the underworld. Uh-huh. Yes, now, here we are. Here's something. Uh, dear me. Oh, dear, no. Today's column seems rather uninspired, I'm afraid. Uh, may I examine it? Of course, here you are. Merci. Um, 
If the lady who helped my little boy across the road at the corner of Threadwell Street and High Auburn last Wednesday at four or will get in touch with box 845, she will learn of something to her advantage. <laughs> we can be more colorful than that in Paris, my friends. Yes, I think we can do better than that, too. Yeah, look at this, William. Oh, printer must have been half asleep when he mm. set up the type for this advertisement. Will any gentleman interested in discussing cryptography and cipher writing please communicate with Box XQL 696 the time? Well, I fail to find this message any more stirring than the preceding one. You notice the execrable printing, don't you? Indeed I do. It is all mixed up. The first word, will, starts with a capital W and a capital I. Uh, the second word, any, starts with a small a, and then has a capital N and Y. It is a shocking example of typography. And when it occurs in a paper noted for its excellence in typesetting, one realizes that uh, this is no mistake. What do you mean, huh? This is undoubtedly a code message. Oh, 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 come now, my friend. I defy even you to make a mystery out of a printer's negligence. I accept the challenge, my dear Leviard. If you recall... The Baconian bilateral cipher depends upon the use of two sizes of type. If we group the letters in units of five, the arrangements of small and capital letters within the group should give us the message. Now, let's see. Two capitals followed by three small gives us the letter H. Then two capitals, one small, two more. Ca that gives us E. H. I still think you are trying to make an adventure out of a mere printing accident. Oh, no mere printing accident could so readily fall into one of the great traditional ciphers. Now, let's see. This message reads, H-E-L, help, uh, uh, Q, too small, A-Q-U-I, quilter, help, quilter, um, L, L, too small and large, L, elms, help, quilter, elms, there it is, yes, penge, help, quilter, elms, penge, help, quilter, elms, penge, what does that mean? Presumably that a man named quilter who lives at a house called the elms, in the village of Penge needs help. Ah, I see it now. A helpless victim held prisoner. He smuggles out this message as a, as a harmless personnel, uh, with strict instructions that it be printed on this art form. He knows that the amateurs of cryptography to whom it is addressed will decipher this call for help. Et voilà. Monsieur Via, you seem ready to grant that adventure can exist in London, after all. <laughs> the advantage, my dear Watson, of a more mercurial temperament than we Englishmen possess. Well, the Via, what about it? Mm. Shall we set off for Penge and rescue the ingenious Mr. Quilter from whatever dire fate awaits him in the elms? I'm all impatience. Mm. Splendid. Watson, I suppose you're too busy to join us. Uh, too busy? Well, I mean, your practice, I'm sure that you have patience to oh, attend. Oh, yes, yes, of course. As a matter of fact, I have two further visits to make today. One to a peppery old miser who has gout, and the other to a wealthy society woman who has acute attack of hypochondria, as they call it. Mr. Blazes was a to hell both for a month. I'm coming with you, Holmes, if you want me. Bravo, Watson, and grab your hat and coat. The game's afoot. Gents, the Helms Pinch. Nice afternoon for a drive, wasn't it? Pretty it'll cost you 15 bob, though. There's a sovereign for you. You can keep the change. Oh, me. Thank you, Governor. Top of the evening to you, gents. Ah, uh, so uh, 
This is the Elms, eh? Quite a bit of land for such a modest neighborhood. Uh, to call it the Elms seems remarkably inappropriate. I-, I cannot see an Elm tree in sight. So you see, Livia, the English have more imagination than you give them credit for. <laughs> Are you just going to walk up to the front door and knock, Holmes? Why not? The direct approach is often the most satisfactory. Oh, you disappoint me. I had hoped that perhaps you would adopt one of the disguises in which you are so adept, I am told. Well, since it's unlikely that these people know me by sight, that's hardly necessary, is it? However, I trust that this little problem may reward you with some colorful highlights before we throw... No. It's Scott. Volvo shots. They came from the house. Ah, we are too late. Mr. Quilter has been murdered. No, I think not. You will observe that the next-door neighbor to the Elms was mowing his front lawn as we drove up. He is still engaged in the same occupation. Obviously, revolver shots attract little attention this vicinity. Mon Dieu, you mean that violence and sudden death are so common that they do not attract even the passing uh, interest? Uh, uh, no, we are. <laughs> even the British are not as phlegmatic as that. Then what is the answer to those shots, Holmes? Well, some member of this household is addicted to pistol practice. The fact that a shooting target is nailed to the back of that fence over there would further support the theory. Well, that's rather ominous, in my opinion. Well, here we are at the front door. Let's keep our wits about us, anyway. Are you carrying a revolver, Dr. Watson? No, and a stethoscope, I'm afraid. I was prepared for sickness when I left the house today, and not for crime. Mm, I, too, am unarmed. How about you, Monsieur Holmes? Only a magnifying glass, I'm afraid. Hardly a very lethal weapon. Yes? My friends and I were calling on Mr. Coulter. Oh? Who are you? My name is Sherlock Holmes, and these are my friends. Dr. Watson and Monsieur Le Villard. How do you How do, you do, do madam? How do you do? Mr. Quilter expect... I don't know. We uh, read his advertisement in the agony column of the Times today and came down here at once. Are you uh, a relation of his? I'm his niece. Oh. My name is Doris Favisham. Come in, won't you? Uh, Miss Favisham, I suppose it is. Yes, Doctor. It's Miss Favisham. Uh, we uh, heard three revolver shots as we were walking up the driveway. They... Gave us quite a start. Yes, mademoiselle. We were afraid that we might have arrived at the time of tragedy. Yes, indeed. Tragedy? Oh. <laughs> My hobby is revolver shooting. I was doing some target practice in the back garden as you arrived. Revolver shooting, Miss Savage. Very interesting. I flatter myself that I'm something of a marksman myself. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps we can have a match. Won't you sit down? Your challenge intrigues me, Miss Savage, but uh, before I accept it, I should like to see Mr. Coulter. Well, Uncle George is paralyzed, you know. Oh, well, Spend all his time in a wheelchair. I'm not at all sure he'll see you. Well, at least you can ask him, can't you, Miss Favisham? It is his custom at this time of the day to take a little nap. Uh, perhaps tomorrow... Doris! Doris! Uh, he's still awake. Who's in yes, Uncle? Some men have come to see you, Uncle. Well, bring him in, bring him in. Follow me, gentlemen. Uncle, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Dr. Watson and Monsieur... Uh, Monsieur... Le Monsieur Le Villard. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Sherlock Holmes, eh? Took you long enough to decipher my message and get here, didn't it? Your brother's a much faster worker, isn't he? Oh, what makes you say that, Mr. Quilter? Received this telegram from him at 11 o'clock this morning. Read it for yourself. Oh. <laughs> well, what you say, huh? Suggest you consult my brother Sherlock and it's... It's signed Mycroft Holmes. Yes, Mr. Quilton. My brother is a much faster worker. Or shall we say that he suffers from the unfortunate habit of early rising? He undoubtedly read the agony column three hours before I did today. Don't know about that. But I've been expecting you all day. I imagine you know why I inserted that advertisement. Well, I had the impression that uh, you were under some form of restraint. That uh, you were in need of a rescue party, as it were. Rubbish. 
Hmm? My advertisement was a piece of subtle bait. The only person that could decipher the message would obviously be someone who knew the Baconian cipher. A very logical deduction, Mr. Fulton. You see, I'm convinced, as any sensible man should be, that the so-called Shakespearean plays were written by Sir Francis Bacon. Oh, I see. But I felt that it needed a clever man to prove the fact. Mm -hmm. I was sure that anyone who was able to decipher my message was the man I needed. And what did it take, Mr. Holmes, to do the job? I'm a rich man. Name your fee. You mean to say that you inveigled Mr. Holmes down here just to do some research? On the origin of Shakespeare's work? Oh, you needn't look so shocked, Dr. Watson. My uncle has offered to pay him a handsome fee. Well, what do you say, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? An interesting subject for research. I'll concede that Ignatius Donnelly and others have proved almost beyond doubt that William Shakespeare of Stratford-on-Avon did not write the plays, but I greatly doubt that Lord Bacon did. I may devote my leisure and later years to some investigation on the subject, but in the meanwhile, Mr. Grotham, I'm afraid I'm much too busy to undertake such an assignment. You please yourself. Show the gentleman out, Doris. Goodbye, sir. Good day, sir. Too bad you had this long drive down here for nothing, gentlemen. Yes, I'm afraid I quite agree on it. It would seem to me that your uncle has a distinct talent for practical joking, mademoiselle. Uncle? Uncle never made a joke in his life. Mr. Holmes, now that you're here, perhaps you'd like to indulge in a little shooting match. Thank you, Miss Faversham, but um, as I told your uncle, I'm a busy man. Good evening to you. Goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye. Goodbye. Holmes, old fellow, you're, you're losing your touch. You'd never made a blunder like this if I'd still been with you. <laughs> it is comforting for an aspiring detective like myself to know that the great Sherlock Holmes is fallible. Yes, <laughs> then am I to assume that I must continue the case alone? What do you mean, continue the case? There isn't, uh, there isn't one. Wilkes is in no danger. He's in desperate danger. What? I'm only afraid I may be too late to save him. But we have just spoken to the man. Oh, no. Did either of you notice the traces of fresh loam on the boots of that supposedly paralyzed man? Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. <laughs> Doctor, why did you have to break off your story there? Well, I had to break it off somewhere, Mr. Bartell, and that seemed to be the most exciting spot. <laughs> it certainly was. I was convinced that the great Sherlock Holmes had been fooled for once. What happened next? Well, I need this to remark we did not get into a cab and go back to London, but let me pick up the story at the same place that I broke it off. As Holmes said... Gentlemen, I fear the agony column has led us to murder. Murder? There was fresh earth on the soles of his boots, you say? Distinct traces. Proving that the man in the wheelchair was not paralyzed. And that man, whoever he is, was impersonating Quilter to put us off the track. And the real Quilter may have been killed, eh? I'm afraid so. Let's stop here for a moment, shall we, while we make our plans. This hedge will hide us from the house in case they're watching from the windows. Now, this isn't a hard picture to reconstruct. There undoubtedly is or was a paralyzed Baconian scholar named Coulter. He managed to smuggle out that ingenious plea for help, but Mycroft's unfortunate telegram gave the game away. Mm-hmm. I see it now. The people in there holding him prisoner forced him to reveal what he has done, eh? What they may have done to him, heaven alone knows. One of the criminals, guessing from the telegram that I might appear on the case, posed as the crippled Coulter. What's our next move, huh? Remember that singularly unattractive young lady skilled with a revolver? We must search the grounds as unobtrusively as we can. Search the grounds? For what? Uh, I can answer that question, Monsieur Doctor. We search for signs of the freshly turned earth of a grave. <laughs>
find any traces of the poor devil's corpse, thank heaven. No. A great disappointment. Jeremy, hey, you're very bloodthirsty to the yard. Hello. Look at the old fellow trimming the hedge over there. Must be the gardener. Let's have a chat, then, shall we? May be able to give us some information. Good evening to you. Evening to you, gentlemen. Really? You work for Mr. Quilter? That I do, sir. That I do. Yeah. Very fine work, too. I've seldom seen a better kept garden. Why, thank you, sir. I do pride myself in my work. I wonder if you can help me. Be glad to if I can, sir. Uh, did you see a telegraph boy deliver a message here this morning? That I did, sir. The boy came here about ten o'clock this morning. I was a clipping the front edge at the time. And uh, you've been working here ever since? Yes, sir. Brought my lunch with me today and ate it in the garden. Has anyone entered or left the house since that telegram was delivered? No, sir. No one except yourself. I see, I see. I suppose you occasionally run errands for Mr. Quilter? Not much these days, sir. The poor old gentleman keeps his chair in the house pretty much all the time, sir. I did run a message for him yesterday, though. Oh, you did? Where to? Well, sir, I was pruning the rose bushes under his study windows when the window opens and his hand comes out with a message. He told me to take it to the village office of the Times and to tell him to print it just the way it was. He looked kind of worried when he gave me the message. And he he whispered to me, just as if he was afraid in his own house. I'm much obliged to you. Here's five shillings for your trouble. Oh, thank you, sir. Much obliged to you, I'm sure. Good evening. Good evening to you, gentlemen. Mm, so that's how the message was smuggled out. Mm, and no one has come to the house or left it since that telegram was delivered. Now, yeah, Kulter or his body must still be inside that house. We are going to search the house? Yes, we are. But we're not armed, and they certainly are. They probably won't even let us in. Yes, they will. We have a, an infallible key to entry, a woman's vanity. Come on. Oh, so you came back. I thought you wouldn't be able to resist my challenge to a pistol match, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> exactly, Miss Favisham. We had difficulty in finding a cab and decided to take a train back to London. It was an hour's wait, so I... Well, I thought I'd accept your challenge. Good. Come in. We'll go into the back garden. Thank you. Don't talk loudly. I think Uncle's asleep in the next room. Don't bring anybody in here, Doris. I want to see. All right, Uncle. This way, gentlemen. If your uncle wants to sleep, he was a funny sort of al- alibi. <laughs> oh, well, he's used to that, Doctor. There we are. This is the 50-yard range, Mr. Mm-hmm. Holmes. Three shots. Best aggregate score wins. I'm still on a bet. Ah, you name the stake. <coughs> name the stakes, Miss Favisham. The sovereign? Certainly. You uh, take the first three shots? Very well. I will just check that it's loaded. Yes? Six bullets. All right. Here I go. Bravo, Miss Faversham. Splendid. Bullseye and two winners. I can do better. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. Doris, who are these men? Friends of mine. I'll introduce you in a minute, Jeffrey. We're in the middle of a match at the moment. Your turn, Mr. Holmes. Any vulva, please? Here you are. Thank you. You, uh, you're sure you know how to handle a revolver? Oh, quite sure, thanks. And why are you pointing it at me? Because I want you to raise your hands above your head. You too, whatever your name is. Doris, who are these men? Put up your hands. I shan't hesitate to shoot, I assure you. Come on. That's it. What in heaven's name do you think you're up to? Finding out what became of the real Mr. Quilter. 
Search the man, Watson. Right, you are, Holmes. Be off. Uh, go to the house, will you, and search it? Uh, yes, but of course. Hello, this man had a revolver on his hip. Keep him covered with it. He'll stand still, you. Now, sir, who are you? From your resemblance to the man in the wheelchair that we saw earlier, I should say that you're a member of the same family. We're both relatives of Mr. Quilter. That's right. My name's Davis. I'm from the Australian branch of the family. Relatives. Yes, and doubtless you stood to inherit his estate in the event of Quilter's death. You moved in on this defenseless old man, terrorized him, lived off him, and finally found it necessary to destroy him. You're talking absolute rubbish. He's telling the truth, and you know it. I can tell by your expressions. Move back into the house, both of you. Come on. And keep your hands raised. All right, that's it. Come on. Lead the way into the study. The man posing as Mr. Coulter is still there. We heard him call out as we came in. Yes, we might as well confront the three of them together. Yes, he's still seated in the chair. He seems to be asleep. Here. Did you find anything? Another trace of the missing men, Monsieur Holmes. Davis. What did you do with Mr. Quilter? I didn't do anything with him. Of course not. He's sitting there in that chair. Well, it's no good lying to us. We know that that man's an imposter. This is a fantastic situation. Nobody has left this house since the telegram arrived, and nobody has come to it, yet Mr. Quilter has vanished. Good Lord, how can he sleep through all this talk? You'd think he'd been drugged. The figure. We are idiots. You are unquestionably the most promising detective in France, and some people have been kind enough to grant me a similar status in England, and yet my old friend Watson has just solved the case. Well, nothing. I'm too happy to... What? Solved it? Well, how? Listen to the breathing of that man in the chair. What? He's been drugged. There sits the real Mr. Quilter, the persecuted victim who sent a cipher message for help. The man we spoke to earlier. Was you, Mr. Davies, impersonating Quilter. After you'd received us, you took off your disguise, adopted an Australian accent, and then hid your drug victim by placing him in his own wheelchair, knowing that would be the last place we'd look for him. Mm, and they would have kept him here until we had gone and then murdered him. What a devilish plot. Well, what have you got to say for yourselves? It was Jeffrey's idea, not mine. I didn't have anything to do with it. That's a dirty lie. You were in this as much as I am. Oh, this is splendid. This is splendid. Please continue the argument. It'll... Make interesting evidence in court. You can't take us into court. Of course you can't. What's the charge? Quilter's still alive, isn't he? When Mr. Quilter revives under Dr. Watson's ministrations, you will be charged, I have no doubt, with attempted murder, abduction, sequestration, duress, and probably several other counts. Monsieur Villard, if you will find us a cab, we'll take these miscreants to Scotland Yard. Our work is done. <laughs> Well, Doctor, that was a fine story. Every... What are you fidgeting for? Fidgeting? Well, I'm expecting a guest. I thought I heard him just now. Now, there's the front door. A guest? <laughs> now, you're being as mysterious as Mr. Holmes. Oh, not quite. You see, I... Ah, come in. Dr. Watson, how are you, you old rascal? <laughs> Gregory, my boy. It's great to see you again. Mr. Bartell, meet my friend, Mr. Gregory Hood. Not... The Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, I like the way you say that. <laughs> yes, Mr. Bartell, this is the Gregory Hood. Mr. Bartell, if you listen to Dr. Watson, he'll lead you to believe I'm much more important than I am. I'm quite a simple person, really. I'm kind to dogs, just love little children, and always help old ladies cross the street. I also know how to make a fire by rubbing two sticks together. <laughs> yes, and unlike my old friend Holmes, you pretend to know very little about criminals and crime... 
And yet you're one of America's outstanding criminologists. So I've heard. A hobby, Mr. Bartell, a hobby. My real business is importing. Headquarters, San Francisco. Uh, need any old masters? Perhaps I can sell you a nice piece of jade, or uh, would you rather have a bit of old Balinese sculpture? <laughs> no, wait a minute. This is all a little too fast for me. Yes, you learn that Gregory is a little too fast for everybody. Uh, but, Mr. Bartell, I'm sure you'll get to know Mr. Hood a good deal better. You see, as I've told you, I've always wanted to take a trip back to England, and now I have a chance to do so. But, Doctor, uh, won't I see you again? What about our story? Oh, I shall be back in the fall. But meanwhile, I've asked Mr. Gregory Hood to get together with you at this time every week and tell you some of his experiences. Which, of course, makes me feel very important. Mr. Hood, as you know, has been involved in many famous cases dealing in crime. His importing business and his hobby criminology are a strange combination. I learned that he keeps a diary of these cases, and it's a fascinating book. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. The Casebook of Gregory Hood. Sounds intriguing. Intriguing? Huh. It certainly is. Thank you. Well, then I can tell all our friends, be sure to listen next week at the same time and every Monday night through the summer to The Casebook of Gregory Hood. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Sign of Four. Music is by Dean Foster. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Jack Benny, followed by Lights Out. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.